0: Welcome, this is the second part of the Eden to Zion Bible series plowing through the grand narrative of the Bible to build that big picture gospel and form a biblical framework, a biblical worldview in which to live by. To reflect the character of Messiah we must attempt to view reality In a way that reflects his view of reality the closer we get to god's starting point the closer we get to know him his character his word and the plan that he has for mankind and the earth so it makes sense before we get stuck into genesis 1 to firstly understand what a worldview is um, and then i'll briefly underline the the truthfulness of scripture and um, and finally we're going to touch on hermeneutics Uh, the methods of interpreting scripture which, um, which are led by and play a part of forming our worldview. So what is a worldview? Well, you and I have a worldview. Subconsciously, everybody styles a pair of lenses through which they view the world. It governs our thinking process, our reasoning, interpreting, and knowing. You decide through it, whether something is real or unreal, important or not important. You depend upon your worldview like a, like a computer operating system. And this system of beliefs enables you to navigate daily life from uh, determining what makes you laugh to managing hardship. And we, we filter everything through our worldview. Philip Johnson describes it as a collection of prejudices, accepting or or rejecting in a regulatory fashion. Uh, Like a computer, our worldview system is constantly being updated and developed by essentially either the word of God or the capricious dogmas of the world. Uh, for Christians, a worldview not only uh, establishes uh, an emphatic credence of total reality, it determines how we live out our faith. Now, understanding our own worldview is, without exception, an, an internal view. It's uh, comparable to, to taking off and examining our own viewing lens that we can't see without it. So we do not typically see our 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 own worldview but we see everything else by looking through it does that make sense but it is it is important to be aware that that we everyone has a worldview and as christians we should be intentional about developing a biblical worldview have you ever been like incredibly frustrated with other people because you couldn't understand why they, they would come to certain conclusions. Their worldview determines who they will vote for, what kind of spouse they will pick, uh, what type of car they will drive, what they do in their spare time, what they think about their identity and so forth. So we must be aware whenever we're doing evangelism, debating, discussion um, or any interaction because it's not really a case of evidence so much as reorientating their viewpoint that is key to to transforming minds. When someone becomes a Christian or a Jew has faith in Jesus as Messiah, it's not so much a conversion of conclusions. They don't just out of the blue conclude that Jesus rose from the dead. Rather, their worldview has shifted to allow them to observe through a different lens and make new conclusions based on those observations. It's it's the starting point and the direction from that view that has changed. The symptom being a character, a change character due to a new end belief. And the Holy Spirit is the quickener who assists with that transformation of worldview to reboot you. When scientists debate over the origins of the universe, it's not a battle of evidence. We all have the same evidence. It's a battle of worldviews. Arguments uh, tend to comprise of competing interpretations of the same evidence with little reference to starting points and therefore you can never argue someone into the kingdom of god we can't just offer a piece of our worldview and fit it into theirs we're required to show them a new jigsaw placing placing the framing components in which you can then allow them to solve the puzzle themselves does that make sense you may contend that you have an unbiased independent well-rounded neutral worldview and I observe people um, that want to be perceived this way all the time but the reality however is that this belief or this posturing is in itself a worldview and Jesus refuted the notion of neutrality when he stated anyone who isn't with me opposes me and anyone who isn't working with me is actually working against me so can we know truth trying to make sense of the universe and our place within on uh, the understanding that each of us hosts uh, just a tiny fraction of knowledge and experience has been said to be impossible through religion and several analogies have been employed uh, to dismiss the idea of anyone discovering truth with a capital T. Let me paint to you my own analogy. Imagine uh, 10 children in a classroom uh, that's been filled with with smoke by a smoke machine uh, with loud music playing and they're discovering their surroundings. Now If you ask them to describe their their view of the classroom, you would get 10 different answers. All true according to their personal experience. And this is is where the religious pluralist would like to leave it, suggesting that all ways lead to God. All religions are true with a small t. All religions are false with a small f um, or any other deduction to reduce truth with a capital T to truth with a small t. But the illustration does not stop there. The biblical worldview suggests that we can know truth. And this illustration as well as others have been cleverly debunked. Uh, you may have heard the the ancient Indian fable of the blind men each experiencing a, a different limb of the same elephant. Uh, the missionary Leslie uh, New New and uh, uh, noted that these analogies are all from the point of view of someone that does have truth with a capital T. Now, a uh, one overlooked fact is is that the elephant in that illustration was not mute, and neither is God, which changes everything. And logic too would suggest that it would be impossible. To make an absolute statement about truth if there are no absolutes. Paul said creation was subjected to frustration. While it is true that we live in a creation that has been temporarily ruined, blinding us to some degree from its creator, some children deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago by the word of God. Applied to my own illustration certain children in the classroom have chosen to put on blindfolds to further hinder their viewpoint Uh, the children experience the classroom in its in its current condition previously trashed by the earlier classes and they conclude there is no headmaster in charge ignoring the concept of the original newly constructed state of the classroom now while some have wrecked our home in planet Earth, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. The children in the classroom can ignore the headmaster all they want. The design around them shouts of his existence. And when he finally enters the room, their excuses are exposed. The Bible argues that God, the headmaster, has in fact revealed himself, not just in in what we call general revelation, creation and conscience, but also in special revelation, scripture and Messiah. Although the children have a tiny fraction of information in which to base their judgment, the headmaster has written a letter to, to those who see, albeit dimly, who are told to describe this perspective to the rest of the children. Of course, I'm speaking here of scripture. Uh, the headmaster sends greater proof of his sovereignty by speaking directly to one child to to guide the others, the prophets, sending his teaching assistants angels, and eventually his son, the deputy head, Jesus. Now, some children recognise this, but others continue to splash paint on the wall. Some choose to put on ear defenders. Others are obedient in speaking to him and learning from him. Continue the crude analogy at will. Apologist Aaron Brake argues that if Christianity is true, Then we can abandon our radical skepticism concerning knowledge of god in favor of the radical claims of christ anyone who has seen me has seen the father and this is just the point isn't it if jesus is who he said he was then those who follow the jewish messiah are following truth as francis schaeffer argued with a capital t now while we possess an internal view of the home that we live in We can have knowledge of reality from an external, uh, or more more poignantly, the architect's point of view, God's view. will never have um, the entire scope of his design, the minutes of history, or complete and perfect doctrine, for that matter. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known we are creature not creator child not master but we can be assured that we are on the correct path of truth we lack perfect understanding but we have plenty of material to describe we've been given the 66 volume of of the bible this this library a truthful framework based on the inspired word of god can be mapped out even between christians there is a wide range of worldviews that determine our doctrine. The way you look at the world determines your belief about it. And doctrines flow from frameworks that affect our attitudes and actions. And of course, our view and presentation of the gospel. The gospel you speak reflects the character of the God you believe in. If God's jealousy, his anger, his righteousness and his wrath are brushed under the politically correct carpet to make way for today's Western culture, we reduce God and his gospel to a pink heart-shaped box. Invariably, it's a battle of God's word versus man's word. And you can frequently find Christians who have forged a worldview that, are, that allows them to, as Johnson puts it, ignore their Christian principles when it comes time to do the practical business of daily living, their sincere, seerly held Christian principles are in one mental category for them and practical decision-making in the other. Living as though Jesus is is, is is the coming king to judge the world, but at the same time conform to the patterns of this world. And it can be common to see Christians who place Uh, kind of educational studies in one mental category and then their faith in another and students under tension at university can be found walking this line only to take off their remaining foot off the word of god and they turn their back to the creator to view the world that condones their their sinful pleasures the fashionable tides of of facts pulls on sandy foundations and swamps their faith into a private irrelevant bubble for the heart leaving their their mind back in the secular classroom we've we've arrived at this mishmash of worldviews because from babies to youth club we are forever telling detached stories shelved next to harry potter without teaching them how to develop a biblical worldview erroneous beliefs among Christians are often developed because certain aspects of their uh, of their biblical mental map have not been drawn out or are potentially faint. And when their worldview is challenged, they conveniently replace or overlay that intersection from from secular mapping that they know to be popular or, or has been impinged through worldly osmosis. And this kind of merger of worldviews creates conflict within the mind, distorting the fundamentals of philosophical thought. I'm convinced, It's one of the reasons that Christians really struggle with anxiety. In in the context of laying up treasures in heaven and commanding them not to be anxious, Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. You can't serve two contrasting worldviews either. They pull you in different directions. To ask about suffering, for example, and a source of evil, we will turn promptly to, to the fall in Genesis 3, navigating to a firm answer. Without this crossroad clearly defined, a whole host of ideologies smudge the biblical lens. The reason the UK church has at large sold out to cultural trends is because we failed to be intentional about building a biblical worldview. It's tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes worldviews can be illustrated as storylines and uh, this is actually how my brain is is wired as long as i can remember i kind of view everything through a timeline in fact at a previous church many years ago i was asked to uh, preach on evangelism and um, i was given the classic picture i don't know if you've seen it of of a cross which is like a a bridge from one side of a chasm to to the other Uh, but in my mind the congregation required the holistic biblical storyline for context um but my suggestion didn't go down too well. <laughs> um, but, but each worldview can be illustrated as, as a story that I think is very helpful. A story that has, has a beginning, a middle and an end. And each story must answer the same fundamental questions. How did we get here? What went wrong? What can be done about it, if anything? And where are we heading? The answers to these questions determine our thoughts on on purpose, identity, morality, salvation, accountability, and so forth. Uh, Percy uh, provides a a grid um, in which we can analyze our worldviews uh, with three words, creation, fall, and redemption. And when you apply those categories with the fundamental questions attached, um, you can see where various Christian worldviews go wrong. Now, my preference is uh, John Harrigan's use of the words, uh, protology, Existential Origination, Soteriology, Existential Remediation, Eschatology, Existential Conclusion. Don't worry if you get lost in unfamiliar words. The study of origins we call protology, just think origins. The study of salvation we call soteriology or or it would be progress for the naturalist. Um, and the study of end times eschatology. So protology, uh, beginning, so t- soteriology, the middle, eschatology, end, to keep it simple. Uh, as we are sat in, in the middle uh, of the story figuring out our soteriology, it's helpful to know that the biblical worldview is, as Harrigan puts it, protologically based and eschatologically orientated. So imagine putting a stake in the ground that represents the beginning, where the story will, will pivot from. And then once you correctly establish where the end hope lies, you can put a stake in it and you know the orientation of history. And then you can draw a line and navigate the story from beginning to end. Now, being human, we tend to make ourselves uh, the center of any story, right? The central character. Culture today says, you are a stake, right? <laughs> and you can orientate and head in any direction you feel on, on any given day. Now, for us, we must know which relative direction the stakes are positioned as well as knowing the approximate distance they are positioned relative from you. So, if my story is kind of, kind of like this, right, with my my hands staked diagonally, or like this, up and down, your story will look very different. Or let's say my axis is correct, but my origins is staked, say, three miles this way. Your story will look very differently than if you staked it in relative close proximity. You need to know roughly how long those lines are either side of you. Now, perhaps you stake it kind of like this, with your your protology near, but your eschatology far off. Or, as I would appeal more accurately, you stake your protology not far from your left, my right, and and your eschatology orientates your story from just to your right, my left, which uh, will make more sense in a moment. Now, as we detailed last time, most Christians, they don't have either their protology or their eschatology staked in the correct ground. So uh, their their basis and their orientation of the faith are all over the shop, and therefore their answers to those fundamental questions leaves them susceptible to false doctrines around order, identity, purpose, etc., worldviews have been compared to games games have a self-contained existence a world within a computer game or a football pitch will have a field of play with boundaries games have players with varying degrees of influence or power with their own strategies there are a unified set of rules with a, with underlying assumptions about the purpose or goal And these collections of assumptions within that contained existence form the player's worldview. All too often, each player has its own version of the rules in mind in which they play by or use as a yardstick to measure others, and games tend to have historic and proposed development. The biblical worldview, too, speaks of a self-contained existence in which we play. Human and angelic players, for example, each with their own strategies, and each player explicitly or implicitly preaches their worldview. Universal laws with local expressions, as well as the history and future of existence. Now, how is this helpful? Well, if you fail to recognize the players, you could be wrestling with which you don't know. If you get the playing field wrong and you think it's a game of basketball when we're playing football, you'll be trying to dunk on a football net. You'll be using the wrong tools on the wrong thing in the wrong area at the wrong time. If you get the goal of the game wrong, you get the mission wrong. When I witness Christians who are struggling with life, particularly mental struggles, as they talk, I think to myself, They don't grasp the biblical worldview. They they are, they're fighting or they're trying to achieve or they they think they should be here or there, but it's because they don't grasp the biblical worldview that they play a part of and are bound by. The biblical worldview as a storyline is as follows. Creation by creator, shortly followed by the fall, the, the sin brought about curse, Corruption for the best part of 1700 years means the catastrophe of the flood of Noah's day, represented by N. A century and four generations later, the city of Babel and the creation of the nations, represented by B. The kingdom, covenants, Abraham, Moses, David. Four millennia since creation, Messiah then came, the cross, burial, ascension. And just under 2000 years later, we exist. Soon is the day of the Lord, the return of Jesus. In future sessions, we will explore the field of play, um, its makeup of material and spiritual, the layout of the heavens and earth, the characters, the rules or the the laws of God, and we'll um, intermittently contrast it with uh, opposing worldviews. As we stare into the worldview of the Bible as a storyline, we can see our place within it, greatly valued by God, but we're insignificant in the grand narrative of things, to the point of it being humbling. Rather than them being the stake and the main character of our own game, we should seek the creator, the master of our world, and play the part that he desires for us within his story. And that basic outline should begin to assist you to stake your protology and eschatology correctly. We are positioned at just under 6,000 years from, from the beginning and very possibly close to the end of the age before the new creation, the day of the Lord. We require a, a Jewish cruciform view or cruciform apocalyptic view. A cruciform simply means in the shape of or or the pattern of the cross. History has been reshaped by the implications of the cross and empty tomb. As Christians, we live in in the latter days of the creation week, the final third, the last two of the six millennia of this age, between the first coming and the second coming of Messiah, a time of, of great mercy before the recompense to come, of suffering before glory, of carrying a cross before receiving reward, of dying daily to self, before resurrected to life, of God's kindness before severity, of grace before judgment, an awareness that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. And we look forward to that day of the Lord when each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done now in conclusion of this worldview segment ultimately there are only two worldviews one based on god's word and all the other flavors of one based on man's word only god's word provides the correct foundation for life we've only scratched the surface of worldview studies Um, but i want you to be conscious that you have a worldview and how it affects your beliefs and therefore our daily walk with god now this series will be insufficient to fully equip a a generation to analyze and critique competing worldviews but in laying out the gospel skeleton from head to toe you can flesh out for yourself uh, predictably uh, generating a holistic worldview to defend and and proclaim now we are going to attempt to put on the specs of the Holy Spirit, the worldview that God has from his word written in the oracles of scripture. How does God view life? How does he interpret existence? How does God see history and the future? And it begins with total submission to our creator. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. Are we prepared to learn from his point of view in his word written down for us to frame. Now before we get into hermeneutics, let's just underline the truthfulness of the Bible. The assumption throughout this series is is that of the Bible being the inspired word of God. This is our starting point, it's the true lens through which we view the world rather than impart the world onto it. We start with the Bible that speaks of of truth and has authority. As sons and daughters of our Lord Jesus who quoted scripture, lived a life according to the laws of scripture, fulfilled prophecies of scripture, gave future prophecies to be written as scripture, rebuked Satan on stripping a verse from its scriptural context. He read scripture in the synagogue, and he proclaimed that if you believe scripture, you would believe him it's exceedingly clear that jesus declared the judeo-christian scriptures as his authoritative word that he loved with his heart being satisfied by it his mind understanding it and his will obeying it the inspired uh, apostle paul declares that all scripture is breathed out by god and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The writer of Hebrews says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart it's it's the word of God it's called the oracles of God it's it's the counsel of the most high scripture cannot be broken according to John research professor of bible and theology Wayne Grudem articulates the authority of scripture means that all the words of scripture are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God the bible is not a library of books that we we mix with other stories slipping in and out new collections but one that speaks timelessly of the unveiling historic plan which god is in complete control of that will not waver that will not change that will not contradict itself that continues to be true to this day and the entire earth will one day recognize When Christians deviate from the central gospel thread, or large runs of it are willingly unheeded, it is suspiciously, invariably connected to the issue of authority. Two people can claim to hold the Bible as authoritative, both sincerely laboring for the Lord, and yet one could espouse a false belief on a certain subject, while the other holds fast to true doctrine. It's a case of infiltration of man's word pushing back God's word. It's often committed subconsciously. When one or two beliefs are askew, so other beliefs are knocked off balance also because all doctrines are linked in some way. Consequently, it isn't surprising to see a group of people who hold a particular belief also hold another belief, seemingly unconnected yet subtly extruded through that same filter. As we demonstrated with staking your protology uh, correctly if you believe in theistic evolution for example i could guess what other doctrines that you hold because your protology informs your soteriology which in turn gives rise to your eschatology. Therefore, as careful students of scripture, our foundational framework must exclusively spring from the pages of the Bible. All of the the information outside of the Bible can be interesting and helpful, but it is peripheral. We must let the Bible speak for itself, viewing other sources through its lens. Now, a question that I ask a fellow brother when I suspect that they are off point is this. What makes you believe that from what you've read in the Bible? What makes you believe that from what you have read in the Bible? And I am amazed how many times people answer with no reference to Scripture. And you can see if their answer follows the shifting sands of culture, or if they do go to, to Scripture, is it stripped from its context? Scripture is clear that the Bible is to be our standard for living do we trust god's word as the ultimate authority how big is your god hermeneutics we need to understand a little about hermeneutics biblical hermeneutics is the study of the principles and methods of interpreting scripture now of note our method of biblical interpretation is fashioned by our worldview what is also true is that our hermeneutic fashions our worldview. Circular fashioning. <laughs> but but we all do this, right? And having, a, having an awareness of our internal process can help us shift away from, from seeing what we want to see to what scripture is actually saying. And let's face it, the entire Bible was written by Jews, right? Hebrews in different unfamiliar languages, locations, and times than our own. For Gentile believers living in the 21st century west there is a need to work a little harder to grasp the big picture yet while the bible contains all forms of literature um, history poetry wisdom a prophecy letters apocalyptic writings with uh, symbolic and, and figurative language legal writings parables even satire the lion's share is straightforward to understand yes a prophecy of the future can be like piecing parts of a puzzle together. But as good Bereans, those who who read and study every day, the general timeline of events fall into place. The Bible is not so much difficult to understand, rather it's difficult to accept and believe. Now, of of course, uh, some passages we're going to wrestle with possibly for, for, for our lifetimes, and there's always more to learn. But I've often heard the phrase problem passage referencing a text which meaning is is plain to see it's a case of problem people not problem passages and sometimes we refuse to accept what it says for a whole variety of reasons and then then it becomes part of our corrupted message that we deliver to those around us it should be a lifelong goal of a christian to align with god's viewpoint having employed good hermeneutics we should desire the correct interpretation of scripture Paul exhorts us to do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, rightly handling the word of truth. Without good biblical hermeneutics, you can make the Bible say anything you want. Some people take scripture and twist it to their own destruction, Peter says. You could prove from the Bible that God doesn't exist, right? because in Psalm 14 it says, there is no God. Now, of course, in context, it reads, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So we want to guard from misinterpreting, misapplying text. The goal of good biblical hermeneutics is to help us to discover truth and protect from falsehood. Now, someone, someone once said to me, you're not going to stand before God and him say to you, well done on your good theology, or I am unpleased with your bad theology. Yes, he is. Maybe not in those words, but ultimately our hermeneutics will be held accountable because what we believe and how we go about discerning truth matters. There are various broad groupings of methods, each with their own label, the prominent ones being the literal interpretation. The literal interpretation is according to the plain meaning conveyed by its grammatical construction and historical context. And Jerome, uh, Aquinas, Luther, Calvin, evangelicals today, Bible-believing Christians should be in this camp. Then you have the moral interpretation uh, which is about selecting text to derive ethical lessons and you'll actually find unbelievers uh, will will use this method to form lessons from the bible the allegorical interpretation a second a level of meaning beyond the literal a uh, clement of, of alexandria and oregon would employ this method along with other methods which added to that that, that kind of over spiritualization of the gospel the anagogical or mystical interpretation, typical to uh, Jewish study uh, than Christianity. This approach interprets Bible, uh, biblical events as prefigures of the afterlife. Now, uh, because hermeneutics is is an art as well as a science, people will disagree within each camp, of course. But it's good to be aware of the broad groupings of approaches and. You know what, there's there's many more, with with new methods popping up as culture develops, such as liberation hermeneutics, reading the Bible through the lens of their own experience, which I actually thought was a joke until I heard that that a pastor of a church I once attended (laughs) uses that method, which um, (laughs) explains a lot. Um, It's the opposite of good hermeneutics. It's like dumping all your baggage on the Bible, hoping you can see the truth through it. (laughs) Reading your own personal experience into the text is the definition of eisegesis. Um, Exegesis and eisegesis are are two uh, terms worth noting. Exegesis means to lead out of, ex out of. We read out of. uh, The ideas of, of the text leads us to conclusions. What does the passage mean? Um, and what, what are the universal truths? And um, how do I apply it to my life? Jesus means to lead into, into, and um, ice into, um, to read into a passage our own ideas. So you have an idea, you find a passage that you think will support it, and then you apply your own idea to your life. <laughs> you know, And you'd be surprised how many sermons are actually like that. Now, all of us, to some degree, inadvertently read into text ideas that, that aren't there. Remember... Is not about you. We should be exegetes, expounding the Word of God. Now, you could come up with your own hermeneutic, right? You could say, "I have a principle of reading with, with one eye open, right, and connecting every three verses, and call it the the you know the the um, the one eye triverse hermeneutic." <laughs> so, and this is the thing: um, there are there are teachers and there are pastors uh, up and down the country. That, that are given a mic or are leading uh, Bible studies that, that have no hermeneutical guidance, um, or they're passively taught progressive principles. No wonder we are in a mess in the UK. So, um, some have made the mistake of saying that the hermeneutical methods they they limit the Holy Spirit helping me interpret. But the reality is is that firstly. Everyone has a hermeneutic, whether you're aware of it or not. And secondly, we're trying to align with the correct hermeneutics that inspired the text in the first place. We're trying to view it as God intended. We will be following a literal hermeneutic or a a literal grammatical historical hermeneutic I prefer the, the longer label, literal, grammatical, historical, which is uh, more self-explanatory. Uh, when it comes to hermeneutics, it, it is as if with contemporary academia, there's an obsession with finding new insights hidden in scripture, which can be uh, skillfully leveraged by over-symbolizing and, and, and over-spiritualizing every detail. I guess uh, endless nuance provides endless writing opportunities. Accusation, naturally follows directed at those who take a more literal approach to reading the bible except that god is not the author of confusion endlessly hiding his true meaning of words no i uh, really appreciate the words of the late uh, bible teacher david Porson, who aptly puts it this way no one i know takes the whole bible literally passages that clearly indicate that they are meant metaphorically are taken that way Others that contain symbols are understood accordingly. In the book of Revelation, The dragon represents the devil and the scarlet woman a city, but behind every symbol and metaphor lie realities. The underlying principle behind taking scripture literally, unless it is clearly indicated otherwise, is the simple confidence that God means what he says and says what he means. He's not trying to be obscure or mysterious. The inspired writings were not intended for scholars or theologians, but for ordinary people in everyday language for the most part all that is needed is an open mind and the holy spirit when i read that in one of Porson's books i was like yes go Porson! i love that and uh, we can't swing over that last point too quickly either that the holy spirit illuminates the pages of scripture unblinding us from his message we can have all the tools uh, the correct principles taking the bible at face value but if we don't have the holy spirit to, to quicken our understanding, to bring the page to life, then we, we read it like any other book, and our interpretation will be as dead as the tree it's made from. You can have a PhD in theology, but if you do not know him, your interpretation will likely be off. Now, I really appreciate the work of good scholarship. Um, my, 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 my bookshelf is, is full of, of good, good scholarship. But we must be aware that some scholars they don't believe and there are different hermeneutics being employed within them between the believers so scholarship is not scholarship now authorial intent by grammatical historical context the literal or plain meaning corresponds to the intention of the authors the pursuit of authorial intent sets apart those who hold a high view of scripture uh, we believe in dual authorship uh, the holy spirit empowered men to write in their their own style the very word of god and these men's styles followed the ordinary language against the backdrop of history in uh, discovering the dual author's intent, the, the Holy Spirit's intent inspiring the human author's intent, we should study in a way that considers uh, plain meaning conveyed by uh, its grammatical and historical context, hence the term uh, literal, grammatical, historical. Historical context then, uh, culture, politics, religion, philosophy, events a geography, we can build a picture of the author's world to help relate to him and his audience. And this picture indicates how phrases, and idonyms, words are used. Redemptive historical context, or what Beale calls a redemptive historical rationale working in the background, we consider how the pas- passage sits within the redemptive framework of history. Where is the author sat within... The story, which is why in part we're, we're doing this series. By building that big picture gospel, your future study will allow you to, to place a passage within that redemptive framework, working in the back of your mind. A redemptive historical framework interpreting scripture. And when you have that kind of mind map, not only can you can you go directly to scripture that relates to, to the passage in question, But you'll be aware of the other redemptive elements that factor into the interpretation how is god uniquely using this author at that time to speak to both the immediate and set up future revelation where is the story heading literary context how does the text fit within the flow of the book. A verse within a passage, a passage within a book, the book within the canon of scripture. And most questions can be answered by reading the wider context. Remember that chapters and verse numbers can be helpful but they weren't in the original text. You may have heard the phrase scripture interprets scripture. We can interpret um, a text by comparing it with, with other parts of scripture to discover its meaning. We view a passage in light of all of scripture we can interpret the implicit by the explicit and we will uh, we will come on to um how the biblical authors utilise other texts within all of scripture. Uh, This is the the intertextual literary context. It means a greater context from which we may recognise a pattern of logic which shapes our rationale. So uh, context is key. Word study. Word studies help us to discover how specific words in the original language are used throughout the Bible and other literature of the same era. And like the English language, words can mean different things in a variety of contexts we could examine words like seed or vine eagle um, or synonyms and phrases that resonate how how are they developing concepts metaphors now one caution do not get carried away with the root meaning of a word the etymology words are better understood by usage within the historical context Uh, DA Carson's book um, exegetical fallacies is superb um though bordering uh, technical the more i study the more careful i am with word studies because i see people fly to the moon with some bogus meaning of a word so um Got to be careful with that. The human authors are no longer here, but the same Holy Spirit that caused them to write can teach us what his intentions were, which is why prayer uh, before and throughout is essential. Our culture is incredibly self-centered, and so we often think, how is this speaking about me? What is it telling me about getting a job promotion? You know, if I ran, if I randomly open my Bible like Bible Bingo, will it give me the name of my future wife? And rather rather than the author's intent being the starting point, too frequently we are seeing sermons or, or talks that make application the starting point and they find scripture to support what they intend to say. Now, of course, application should, should, be, should be the target of exposition, but it should be fired from the author's intent, not our own. While the human authors were, were influenced by their time and culture, which would be reflected in their use of idonyms and style, their wisdom was not restricted to their locale. They could push through cultural barriers and speak universal truths, writing down precisely the ideas of the Holy Spirit. Meaning and significance. Even when a letter is written from um, an author to an individual, like Paul writing to Timothy, for example, that author fully intends ideas that implicate both the immediate and future circumstances. Universal principles. The authors understood the distinction between meaning and significance. The meaning is the ideas communicated to the immediate, Paul to Timothy. Significance is the implications, ramifications, inferences, repercussions derived from the author's meaning. Now, I really appreciate um, Abner, Abner Chow's uh, masterpiece on this, the hermeneutics of the biblical writers that um, I, I went through again for this session. Um, and he uh, summarises meaning and significance in one phrase. He says this, ideas, in brackets, meaning have consequences in brackets significance ideas meaning have consequences significance what does the text say and how do we apply it today the author's intent controls both meaning and significance that's really important to understand the author's intent controls both meaning and significance we shouldn't just apply scripture however we feel on a rainy tuesday morning when a new testament author quotes an old testament author his interpretation may or may not demonstrate the primary meaning and will likely include universal significance drawing out an array of application or perhaps focusing on one aspect the biblical authors respected the previous the previous author's intent, historical bra- background, literary context, grammar and words, and the the interconnectedness of Scripture, they do not reinterpret the old the the, the Old Testament author's intent and nullify, say, a prophetic fulfillment simply because a New Testament author brought out an initial idea or specific significance. The Old Testament tees up the New Testament, each relating to its historical reality. Remember, it's the the same Holy Spirit that's working through both. The Holy Spirit wouldn't have an intention through one man in the Old Testament, only to dismiss himself through a different intention through another, right? God is logical. And if we can understand the author's logic in the use of scriptural quotations, we can develop our own hermeneutical logic. Intertextuality. There is a profound interconnectedness of scripture and it never fails to blow me away. What we call intertextuality. Old Testament authors commonly alluded use quotes, concepts, motives even provide introductory formulae before an allusion but it's more common for New Testament authors, less explicit in the Old. One in ten verses in the New Testament are either quotations or allusions of the Old Testament. When I do a verse-by-verse study of a New Testament passage I'm sometimes amazed at how many quotations or allusions that are to old testament passages the author is connecting dots that speak of the same truth so they think in terms of the connectedness of scripture and so should we intertextuality means that context is on a much wider scale than we first imagined no text is an island and we'll come back to a methodology momentarily it's not just a case of uh, cross-referencing either. either. There's, 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 there's much more to it than that. There is a logic. And following in their footsteps, we should try to read scripture as the biblical writers did with an intertextual mindset. They searched prior revelation to discover original meaning and implications that would relate to their historic reality upon which they could develop theological argument. The author's rationale provides clues when we examine the immediate context we ask what is it alluding to is he alluding to a combination of different quotations allusions how do they relate what web pattern of text is being drawn and it's far from subjective the logic is displayed through this kind of careful study indeed First century Jewish literature demonstrates this kind of methodology. The intertextuality of scripture expresses the faithfulness of God to keep his promises. It should encourage us to trust his plan, that his plan is in action, that it will not waver and that it will be fulfilled authorial logic how do we know how to apply our hermeneutic to the pages of scripture how do we know what what the authorial intent is how should we interpret the old testament is the story of david and goliath about about us today overcoming and slaying our own personal giants or is it about who the true king of israel is how, how is it that the new testament authors quote old testament authors and bring out insights that are not apparent from the author's intent. Do the New Testament authors have a different hermeneutic? What about our hermeneutic then? Surely our interpretational methods should reflect the apostolic interpretation. And there are many tools and concepts that we could consider. Literary theory um, echoes the intertextuality of themes such as exile, exodus, and so forth. When a New Testament author points to an Old Testament echo, it it lends us a view into larger themes that run throughout. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament used in Jesus' day, how did they interpret to translate from the Hebrew? The church father's hermeneutic, we can examine their writings. We should consider Second Second Temple Jewish literature to understand the worldview of New Testament authors. A biblical and systematic theologies, charts and timelines can be helpful, and we can get ourselves quite confused. So it's helpful to go back to basics and ask the questions that Beale puts forth. What was the author thinking, and how did he reach his conclusion? What was the author thinking, how did he reach his conclusion? What logic did they employ? Right? an authorial logic. Not just, not just what are they saying, but how did they arrive at their assertions? Continuity of hermeneutic. As well as the apostolic hermeneutic, the prophets had their own hermeneutic. The prophets expounded upon earlier scripture. Now, something needs to be said about uh, the understanding of the biblical authors. I totally reject the message of those who downplay the understanding or expertise of biblical writers just because we don't understand why why Matthew quotes Zechariah but says it was Jeremiah who prophesied about Judas in, in Matthew 27 or why Jesus quotes Exodus 3 6 to support the resurrection in Luke 20 it doesn't mean that we know better it's that we don't understand masterful hermeneutics now sometimes we think of the Old Testament prophets as as people who kind of just downloaded words from heaven without them understanding a thing. Uh, Turning to, to passages such as 2 Peter 1 that says, No prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit very true and at the same time the prophets will have meditated on scripture as commanded by earlier revelation they were master exegetes theologians thinkers they were true scholars not like today as such they were rough kind of manly men herdsmen shepherds but passionate in god's word and Chow drills home that it's it's not that they write better than they know but that they write better than we give them credit for So it's not true that they were completely oblivious to messianic themes. Moses, David, others, they spoke of someone greater to come. They weren't completely aware of each theme, but they understood more than we often give them credit for. So um, it's not absolutely true uh, when we say Old Testament concealed, New Testament uh, revealed. Immersed in the scriptures, the prophets upheld the meaning and and developed the theological significance under the guidance of the holy spirit and i can't underline enough that they didn't change the original meaning but they taught and received as it was originally intended and it's so important to understand even moses within the torah he doesn't contradict himself and reinterpret himself from the beginning to the end his intention is consistent moses paints a picture then the the others build off it and they main, they maintain it and build off it and that they retain the same meaning each author does not change the meaning of prior prior revelation in fact every old testament book connects with prior revelation they do not change the meaning of creation of the covenants of the law with its consequences they develop themes and motives with precision of language they engage in both in both biblical theology and systematic theology now There is what is called directionality, intentionally teeing up future revelation in 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 a consistently specific direction they're not pulling out subjective significance or, or kind of shooting off different ideas in different directions they are heading in the same direction each prophet setting up the next prophets all pointing from creation to new creation a redemptive historical logic Meaning New Testament authors are not required to force significance on previous revelation it was it was set up for implications upon further revelation it's not so it's not so much the precise detail but the the general direction that they understood and later authors could then define the significance um, they're not they're not discovering hidden meaning so there's a matrix of texts that are logically interconnected forming themes throughout the old testament and in turn these these themes and concepts um, inform the the apostles hermeneutic in fact abner chow suggests this he says the apostles follow the prophetic hermeneutic and logic the continuity between prophetic and apostolic hermeneutic provides the modus operandi of the apostolic rationale now if true which i believe it is then according to his thesis there is a continuity of the prophetic apostolic and today's christian hermeneutic our hermeneutic should reflect the apostolic which reflects the prophetic and that that should encourage us because we don't have to develop some random hermeneutic we don't have to come up with a with a one-eye triverse hermeneutic right and just hope it's correct we we can strive admittedly as no small task a lifelong endeavor to understand their logic which becomes ours Under the direction from the Holy Spirit, the prophets were master exegetes of the earlier texts, heading towards the further revelation of the New Testament scripture. The apostles didn't reimagine or reinterpret, but developed upon the revelations of the prophets using the same authorial logic, as well as instruction and laying out the implications for the first advent of Messiah. Their hermeneutic, should be ours their intertextual logic should be ours so we could say that we hold a a literal grammatical historical hermeneutic but also a prophetic apostolic intertextual logic still with me <laughs> now please don't worry if you if you're not quite following if you're getting lost in terminology um, as my dad says you probably can't remember what you had for lunch two weeks ago but no doubt it did you some good <laughs> Intertextual methodology. What method can we use to establish the intertextual logic? Why is an author pointing us to other parts of scripture? When studying a passage, we have to collect all the dots and then draw them correctly. Uh, for this I'm leaning on Richard Hayes who who wrote echoes of scripture in the Gospels. Now firstly we have to prove what he calls linguistic distinctiveness of a phrase. If an illusion is genuine we should be able to demonstrate the trigger is intentional. How loud and clear is is the echo? An author may quote directly with, with an introduction or embed an illusion without citation. Is it repeated? When someone keeps repeating a the phrase, they're, they're, they're trying to drill home a point. So we collect all the illusions, all the dots. Secondly, once we've collected all the dots, we must connect them. Correctly, we have to consider all the possibilities of why and how the author is connecting these dots, considering both meaning and significance. We should uh, consider what Hayes calls historic plausibility. How would the recipients have understood it? Is this allusion chronologically available? When Paul writes the phrase the last trumpet in 1 Corinthians 15, he's not referencing the seventh trumpet of revelation because it hadn't been written yet therefore knowing the order in which the books were written matters and we have to consider the historic interpretation how do your conclusions match up to the historic interpretation if you're the only person to make a certain connection it's probably not the holy spirit that's teaching you when people start promoting a new doctrine that hasn't been around for 2000 years you can bet their hermeneutical logic is wrong we can ask how is the author building upon the logic of prior authors how is he using it to develop his theological argument how how does it set up the next authors and thirdly if an alluded text also alludes to another text, again, what are those possibilities within the network? Do other authors of Scripture use or allude to that specific text in a, in a similar fashion? So, for example, Hosea 11.1 uses Exodus 4.22, but Psalm 80, antecedent to Hosea also uses Exodus 4.22 in a similar fashion. So, when you're kind of building this, this web of texts. We have to ask, why is he using this network of text to support his argument? By building this network of texts, we are closer to discovering the author's intent. And you can really see the time and dedication required for good Bible teachers who carefully expound the Word of God. Now, as a caution, not all text is alluding to another. Author's intent, the author's intent is what we are following. We're not trying to find things that aren't there. We have to remember, we don't have new revelation like the authors did the holy spirit helps us read but not reveal more in that sense the gift of prophecy today is different and um, it's to be tested and consistent with scripture we are to seek what the authors have already revealed their implications, their connections their development of theological ramifications, before putting pen to paper, they carefully and with precision read, read previous revelation, following the author's intent and raf- rationale, and we should do the same not finding hidden meaning uh, connecting the dots that, that, that are there, not the ones that aren't, we can't add anything new so let's look at an example. Examples are helpful, and Chow offers a wonderful example um, at a use of an Old Testament text by, by Jesus. In uh, Luke 20, Jesus is questioned by the Sadducees about the resurrection. Now, the Sadducees, they don't believe in the resurrection, so they quote Moses and try to trick him. And Jesus then quotes Moses, using Exodus 3.6 to support the resurrection at the end of the age. And he says this, But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Would you have quoted Exodus 3.6 to support the resurrection? Like, Why did he go to that passage when Moses doesn't appear to be talking about the resurrection? And this is when we consider meaning and significance. Jesus didn't say that Moses meant the resurrection when he said the Lord, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He said that Moses showed the dead would be raised in that passage. He's not saying the resurrection was the primary meaning or if it was meant at all. He's saying that that Moses only has the authority to say the Lord, the God of Abraham and the God God of Isaac and the God of Jacob because He is the God of the living. Jesus is speaking of significance, not meaning. Now, if you have collected only one other dot in this this Luke 20 passage, i.e. Exodus 3.6, now you might say, well, the verse is only talking about, about God defining his identity. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And if so you will have connected the dots incorrectly. And scholars have made this mistake, which is why presuppositions matter. We have to consider that the phrases that include the three names, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are used on multiple occasions, first being mentioned in Genesis. So for example, Genesis 50:24 says, the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, it's referring to the covenant God made with them. Indeed, the language, the God of, is covenantal language. He's not just the God of three related men. He's the God who made the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a God who, according to Genesis, keeps his covenantal promises. The land, the descendants, the blessing to others was promised not just to Abraham's descendants, but to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob personally throughout genesis and we don't have time to go through all the passages moses speaks of the death of the patriarchs not in a way that then that they can now never receive the promises but in a way that one day they will receive them and hebrews 11 attests to that so genesis provides the context that sets up exodus 3 6 in fact the chapter before in exodus 2 says God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. Phrases that contain these three men mean they would personally partake in the promises. Jesus refers to their death. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. He's saying that Abraham, Isaac and Jacob died but are alive in spirit and await the fulfillment of the covenantal promises. And this is exactly what Moses was implying. And how how could it be possible to attain these future promises? By resurrection of their bodies on a future day. Without the resurrection, God cannot fulfill his covenant to these men. Jesus followed the logic of Moses. The Holy Spirit's intended significance through Moses was also delivered through Jesus. Thus, the hermeneutic of the Old Testament continues into the new. And Luke continues, even some of the scribes answered, teacher, you have spoken well, because they knew his logic was on point we can't just pick out any verse and apply it to our lives however we choose the author the author's intent controls both meaning and significance so in conclusion we have a baseline presuppositions that sets us apart from from unbelievers the inspiration of scripture a biblical inerrancy sola scriptura the bible is our supreme authority Um, which, which, which are all about how God has spoken and is speaking to us through his word but also the illumination of the Holy Spirit. God helps us understand what he speaks. He's so kind. He gives us his word and then he helps us understand it and then further considerations include that context is king historical context redemptive historical context literary context word study all the tools that we've mentioned and then more conscious presuppositions um, the centrality of authorial intent the distinction between meaning and significance and the intertextual reality and logic a note about application when it comes to application which is living out the ramifications of god's word we should remind ourselves that meaning leads to significance our application should not just point in any direction but in the direction the author intended the author's intended meaning was informed by prior revelation not what comes after. So we shouldn't read into things, read into the meaning things that that, that aren't really there. But when it comes to theological application, we should consider the grand picture a culture and redemptive history are factored in we can build a picture of universal truths applied to different cultures observing these patterns can help but it's not progressing like the progressives want you to believe like trajectory hermeneutics which I'll touch on in a moment now on occasion authors specify applications within within a specific context and what tends to happen is that they they express a local cultural application of universal truth so how do we know when it's cultural or not carson provides some examples the use of head coverings in first corinthians 11 it's not about a theology of head coverings right they were and still are in, in some cultures an expression of a theology of headship Paul's message was about making sure that we can distinguish between men and women for orderly worship. Washing feet is not about feet. It's about humility. Sackcloth and ashes is regarding a theology of repentance and transformation of posture. It's not about following um, their, their precise stipulation, but about following their logic. Uh, Paul, when speaking about marriage and worship, will declare a universal truth and demonstrate his theology is grounded in the creation ordinances by alluding to Genesis and, and then speak about the cultural application. Now you may have come across a trajectory hermeneutics, sometimes referred to as redemptive movement hermeneutics. They are staking in the ground incorrectly. They uh, pick topics such as love, equality and so forth and they suggest that the New Testament authors are advancing a trajectory as if God has been redemptively slow moulding a topic and and slowly uh, shifting the world to a better standard and following this kind of bogus trajectory we are now advancing it even further it's 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 an evolutionary worldview man was primitive in theology and we're now more sophisticated and equal and loving and and soon will reach perfection it's pride it's it's nonsense our hermeneutic should be the apostolic which continued the prophetic and when you follow how i say paul stakes dots from from the creation account to his own setting you can see there are straight lines of universal truth trajectory hermeneutics stakes the foundational dots incorrectly and then fails to properly follow the themes through redemptive history and then it misinterprets how the new testament author has staked his position and once they have formulated a kind of mythical mythical exponential graph of seemingly relative truth, they then place themselves high up on the ladder of anything goes. So trajectory hermeneutics just, it just seems to find a trajectory in scripture that ends in, in their own approval of their own behavior and pet doctrines, which brings me on to posture. Posture, when it comes to biblical interpretation, the one thing that matters above all is posture. We are specifically warned about arrogant theology and failing to recognise the author's plain words. Take prophecy. A proud man says, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. God must have changed his plan because he hasn't fulfilled it before my lifetime if he hasn't yet fulfilled the prophecy it's because he hasn't yet fulfilled it it's not about you the here and now when i stand before god i'd rather be accused of believing too much he's not going to say why did you think i meant what i said (laughs) why did you believe the plain reading of of the passage (laughs) He's not going to say that is he? jesus said turn and become like children children are more innocent they're less cynical they're, they're like blank canvases willing to learn and take things at face value and they smile a heck of a lot more too we should we should come to the word of god as a child as an immature believer when i started to read the bible i was intrigued in in the in the kind of apocalyptic climax of history now foolishly lacking thirst for righteousness ironically I was desperately thirsty for truth and I asked something of God that I now think was one of the most powerful prayers of my life and it was something like this God no matter what the truth is no matter how hard it is to accept no matter how it could impact my life I want to know what the truth is help me to discover the truth as I read the bible Now that was easier for me to say then when I was young and free but I honestly believe that has impacted my approach to interpretation more than anything because the posture in which you pick up the living word of God determines how malleable you are for the Holy Spirit to work in you. We must be willing to obey. Much false interpretation and doctrine is because we just don't want to obey what it says understanding the bible takes effort it takes time help from the holy spirit will only happen when we are willing to obey and we can always learn more you know that's kind of the beauty of it we can always learn more we have to read it and reread it okay so in closing uh, we've briefly looked at worldviews and hermeneutics um, although if if this is new to you, no doubt it will feel like there's an awful lot to take in. But that's that's the beauty of video, isn't it? Uh, someone mentioned they watched the first episode and uh, they really appreciated it and said they, they'd watch it again. So um, with video, you can you can download it. You can, well, you can certainly download the audio on the website at myking.com. Um, so we want to recalibrate our worldview to align with the biblical worldview um, with the decline of Christianity in the West and. And the the possibility of the return of the king within the next few decades. Urgency is at hand more than ever to revisit that big picture gospel so that we can understand what God is about to do and why and how we can prepare for his dramatic finale. Next time we're going to get into the story of the Bible. God bless. See you next time.